0: Welcome to the One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with partner TCV, a major growth equity firm with investments in companies like Spotify, Netflix, and Peloton, Tim McAdam. Tim, thank you so much for being here. Okay, so let's start with some context about you. Right now, you're a partner at TCV, you're a father to three, and you're happily married. Can you just talk about life on a day to day basis? Yeah,
1: sure. Well, let's see, day-to-day, pretty busy with both parenting as well as my day job, which, as you said, is a partner at a firm called TCV. We've been around for 25 years as a firm. I look after what we call our enterprise group, which is all of our investing into software businesses for the most part, but tech businesses that sell into the enterprise.
0: And do you have any major investments that make you really proud or that have done really well?
1: You know, I've been really fortunate. I've been in the tech investing game now for 30 years. It's my 30th year. I've invested in over 40 companies over the course of my career. So again, really lucky to have been associated with lots of great businesses that have gone on to become either public companies or have had really good financial outcomes. I guess if you, if you look at the portfolio companies I've been involved with, the one I'm probably most proud of is a company called Alarm.com. I currently chair that board. It's a public company. It was founded by a friend of mine from college, and we got involved as a firm about eight years ago. So I would tracked the business for a long time. The CEO is named Steve Trundle. He was a basketball player at Dartmouth, terrific athlete, and probably of the 40-some-odd CEOs I've had a chance to back, he is the most effective kind of level five type leader. If you've read any of Jim Collins' stuff, he leads by example. He's incredibly bright, hardworking, kind of visionary. He sees it around corners. So I think I'm most proud of identifying the business as one that I thought had 10 20 30 year macro legs and architecting a deal that worked for our firm back in 2012 we bought about 40% of the business back then and I've been a confidant to Steve and and chaired the board for 4 years now and very proud of the growth and continued profitability and the fact that we've amassed something like seven point something million customers right now globally across our security platform, our home automation platform. And I've been pretty involved with most of the major decisions, a lot of the major hires, all of the major acquisitions. So it's been a fun ride. I've been blessed to be part of this team and I find it challenging, and invigorating and you know, on a daily basis, I'm thinking about how we as a board and we as a company continue to innovate and stay ahead of, of our competition. And it's a super competitive category, so I guess I'm especially proud of the fact that we've been able to continue to outpace the growth of the market and outmaneuver our competition in a fiercely competitive market against the likes of Amazon Google Nest, the the large branded security providers like ADT, et cetera.
0: And on the um, other side, have there been any investments that have not gone your way that you've taken something away from or that have stuck with you so that you can use what you've learned from that experience and other investments?
1: Yeah, I've had a handful of companies that have not made it. And I think you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about the grit of entrepreneurs in situations where a company doesn't make it. There's a flaw in the business model or there's something unforeseen that you weren't banking on. when You did your initial work, whether it's competitive, whether it's a market force that you couldn't have anticipated. I think a really good story in that respect is back in the nineties when I was fresh out of business school. I was with a firm called GTCR in Chicago, pretty successful, well-known, a private equity firm. And it was 1997, so I was about a year into the job, and the government had put out the U.S. Telecom Act 1996. And along with a colleague of mine, we poured through it, trying to figure out if there was an investment theme. That we could exploit and, and find as a result of this new regulation. And one of the chapters, and it wasn't a, a very long part of the bill, or the act, it was probably about four or five pages, but it related to the payphone industry. You probably don't even know what a payphone is. There aren't many of them around anymore. But back in the 90s, uh, before uh, cell phones were all the rage, there were tens of thousands, uh, actually hundreds of thousands nationwide of pay phones at every convenience store, every gas station, almost in every corner in America, there were these phone booths or pay phones hanging on a wall. I remember banks of them at airports and people waiting in line to, to get on the pay phone. So what we noticed in the Telecom Act of 96 was that they were effectively deregulating. Payphones. So you were, as an independent operator of a payphone route, you can actually own these payphones, own a route, and collect coins out of them as people put coins in and or get paid by the long-distance carriers a certain percent of their revenues that were being generated from people making long-distance calls on those payphones. The main two things that were deregulated as part of the law that we thought were really interesting that could really generate significant returns was payphone owners and operators were now able to charge whatever they wanted for a local call. Used to be way back in the day, it was ten cents. You'd drop a dime to call somebody. There were pockets of the country in ninety-seven that had experimented with twenty-five cent. Local call rates, and that's obviously you know a two and a half x step up from the ten cent, which when you think about the amount of local calls that were being made on a daily and monthly basis, was a significant revenue uplift. So the deregulation of the local call rate, along with the ability for you to extract more from the carriers from the AT&Ts and the MCIs and the Sprints and the folks that were big into Long distance calling back in the 90s used to be that you would pay a fixed fee per phone to the carriers. The way this was going to work in deregulation, that you could effectively negotiate new rates with the carriers. So between those two tweaks in the way the phone industry was regulated, we thought that we could buy these payphone routes for a multiple of cash flow that would then be doubled and tripled almost overnight as a result of the regulation. So we, over a course of two years, went out and bought hundreds of thousands of payphones all over the country. These concentrated routes in the Midwest, a bunch here in California, a bunch in the Southwest. And over the course of those two years, we thought we were really smart. We were buying businesses at five times cash flow that we thought was more like two times cash flow because of our ability to generate more revenue out of each payphone. What we did not anticipate, of course, was the ascendancy of the cell phone. So those payphones over the course of our investment became not the cash flow generating machines that we thought they were going to become, but revenues actually went the other way. And people actually were, it turns out, sensitive to the uh, increase in a local drop rate from $0.10 cents to $0.25. What we also or didn't anticipate was that the long-distance carrier lobbies in Washington were so strong that we weren't able to negotiate with the carriers. So the kind of old way of paying them stayed in place well into our investment hold periods. Long story short, as we over-levered, we borrowed too much money against cash flow that we thought was going up and it was going down. So we ended up creating no equity value and bankrupting the company. And the banks ended up owning all of our routes in the end. So we thought we were super clever dissecting the telecom act of 96. And it turns out what we didn't anticipate was the ubiquity of cell phones over time. And I'll never forget Carl Toma, who's been in the industry for 40 plus years. He's the T in Golder Toma, Pressy Rounder, GTCR, Oklahoma guy, really smart investor. I remember pitching this deal on a Monday morning in front of the partnership, and Carl Toma picked up his phone and said, Tim, what about what about these things? Aren't these things going to be everywhere? And I said, Carl, but you know, no, it's too expensive. People can't afford. To pay cell phone bills, I mean, this is kind of a phone for the masses, these phone books. They're going to be around for decades. And sure enough, he was the one seeing around corners and, and saw the phone, the cell phone wave coming, which we didn't predict.
0: What did you take away from that failure there? It sticks with you for a reason. What would that reason be?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I think the real lesson for me... And this again is a long time ago, but it applies today is that technical innovation happens fast. We knew that cell phones existed. We just didn't think they were going to penetrate the United States as rapidly as they did. If you look at the technical innovation and product innovation and how fast uh, products go from zero to hundreds of millions of revenue now in Silicon Valley and other places, both B2C and B2B, I think it's even more dramatic today how fast technical innovation happens and tech cycles change. So I think the wake-up call for me with my payphone failure was not to underestimate how quickly sentiment changes and paradigms shift over time. I mean, the thought of not walking around with a supercomputer in your pocket is just foreign to us right now. Mm -hmm. Whereas in 1997, I mean, 23 years ago, it was something that I discounted as being a minor threat to our deal thesis.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now let's take a rapid shift. Let's move to 1968 when you were born in Boston. We're going to talk a little bit about your childhood now. So can you just explain what life at home was like for you?
1: Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a suburb of Boston, uh, about a half hour north of the city. I grew up in a uh, very middle class family. My dad was a lifer at AT&T, kind of a middle management executive focused on logistics.
0: Kind of um, funny. Your dad was a uh, worked at AT&T and you tried to screw AT&T.
1: Oh, interesting. I would never thought about that. Yeah. Well, I wasn't trying to screw them. We were trying to negotiate better rates. (laughs) But, But interesting point. And my mom was a dental hygienist. She worked her entire career cleaning teeth and assessing mouths for a living.
0: When you were a kid, what was your relationship like with your family? It was good. We had a pretty
1: tightly knit family. We didn't have a lot. We didn't grow up with any money really, but we always had what we needed. My mom was a terrific homemaker and cook, and we always had great food. And my dad was, you know, kind of a consummate old school dad, kind of hardworking in his own right, but always found time to coach my little league team. You know, neither of my parents ever missed any of my sporting events and any sport I played, you know, from middle school through high school. So we had a a, a tightly knit family. I had a younger sister who's less than two years younger than me. And then we had a a brother who was 11 years, my junior. So I was the oldest in the family. And I was a typical oldest child, kind of overachiever, very focused on doing well in school, pretty hardworking, both in school and, and in athletics. I also... Was the type of kid who wasn't around the house much. I was always out. I always had a job. I was pretty entrepreneurial. I had lots of entrepreneurial ventures, starting from a paper route to shoveling snow to raking leaves to painting houses to working on a local farm in our town to running and, you know, starting and running for three summers in illegal fireworks company that I ran out of my attic throughout the month of June leading up to July 4th.
0: Interesting. Would you like to expand on the fireworks dealership?
1: Yeah, and, and it really was a, a dealership. So I came across, uh, I, I was trying to figure out, and, and this, this is kind of how I started my investing passion, I guess. I was trying to figure out how to turn my money that I'd made from all of my menial labor into more money you know, get leverage on it, uh, turn multiples on it, invest in it. So I was doing a little bit of dabbling in seventh, eighth grade in stock picking, believe it or not. This is back when you'd walk downtown to the broker and put money down onto stocks. It's kind of like going to the horse races. I started to do a fair amount of research on that. But when it came to the fireworks angle, I always had kind of a fascination as a kid blowing things up and setting little fires in the backyard and not being you know a delinquent but just kind of into seeing what i could do with with exploding things and i always had a tough time finding where to buy fireworks fireworks were illegal in massachusetts so i noticed in the back of mad magazine there was an advertisement for mail order fireworks from ohio so i decided to try it out i ordered a catalog this is obviously before the days of of the web and the catalog arrived and you could order fireworks just like you would order out of the LL Bean catalog. And I placed an order. I had to get a money order down at the, the local bank. I remember it was $80 worth of fireworks, which was a big number back when I was in, this was between sixth and seventh grade. And I waited for my fireworks to arrive. This was probably the second week of June or something. So I had plenty of time to sell leading up to July 4th, and I would rush home every day from school so I could make sure that I intercepted the box before my parents came home. I thought they would kill me if they knew I was um ordering illegal fireworks from Ohio. Justifiably justifiably. Absolutely. So the box arrived and it was pretty basic stuff: firecrackers, bottle rockets. I don't know if they were M80s, but they were pretty highly explosive little bombs, cherry bombs, all kinds of other stuff, Roman candles. And I started hustling fireworks down at you know the, at the uh, basketball court near our local school. I was kind of spreading the word in the summer throughout my little network of friends in my town. And I was sold out in about a week and my markup was three X. I, I bought stuff for a dollar, sold it for three. That was kind of my margin. So it was so easy that I decided to take my profits and try it again before July fourth to see if I could make some some more quick money before people started to lose interest in, in fireworks. So I remember getting another order. This time I ordered $150 worth got it just before July 4th. I think it came on June 30th, maybe July 1st. And I sold out within two days. Again, just riding around with a backpack on my bike, with tons of fireworks all over the neighborhood. So I thought I was on to something. So the next summer, I bought $400 worth of fireworks the first week of June, and I sold out immediately. And then I bought $1,000 worth, which was just a lot of money for this was I like think between seventh and eighth grade, unheard of for somebody in my socioeconomic class to be running around with a thousand dollars. But I remember getting a thousand dollars, thousand dollar money order, and just being so nervous that I wasn't going to get the fireworks in time and all that. So long story short, I got a thousand dollars for the fireworks. Probably had only sold half of them. And I came home from playing one day. This was kind of, you know, maybe third week in June, between seventh and eighth grade. And my dad had come home early for some reason. And all of my fireworks were on the dining room table. And I had been hiding them in the attic up in these boxes. And by the way, the attic was like 120 degrees. So it probably wasn't smart to have explosive devices and fireworks and Roman candles up there. But Anyway, my dad was just sitting there looking at me, clearly irate, and started to grill me about these fireworks. He he knew it had to be me. So I admitted that it was me. I, I told him about the business, and I think he was secretly kind of proud, but also nervous about what would have happened had the police caught me dealing fireworks down at the at the basketball court. So long story short, he made me throw them out. I had to take all of these fireworks and I probably maybe got my money back that year, but had tons of profits to come and probably another week or so to deal before July 4th. And he made me throw them in a dumpster behind a convenience store in our town and swear to him that I wouldn't dig them out the next day. So... That was an a interesting lesson of, you know, bending the rules a little bit, but also uh, being crafty enough to to figure out how to create a market and, and what, what market making really means. Uh, and when there's scarcity value, you can build in a premium price. So that was a pretty, I, I think, a pretty interesting life lesson.
0: Yeah, there's always an opportunity, even if uh, it's a little bit illegal.
1: Yeah, that's right. This yeah. was probably in the 90s. <laughs> I mean, this was probably a lot of legal. This was in the eighties, I guess. So this was probably a lot of legal. At least you weren't selling drugs. I wasn't selling drugs. And I don't think anybody blew their hand off. That you know. That I know of.
0: So other than this story, how did your family life shape who you are as a person and develop any values in you?
1: Yeah. My family always valued education. I think I was fortunate to earn a scholarship to a, a local, Boarding school uh, close to where I grew up. I had a friend who was at the school at the time, and I always admired him. He was a great athlete, a really smart kid who I always looked up to. This school accepted me and provided my family with enough financial aid where I could go as a day student. So, my parents, I think from an early age, with my brother and sister as well, really instilled a work ethic to. Do the best you could do in school, get into the best schools you can get into, and that'll, in their words, set you up for an easier life than they had. So I took that to heart. I worked really hard in high school, a school called Brooks in North Andover. Made a lot of terrific friends, learned how to study, learned how to manage my time, and ultimately parlayed that into getting into a good college and a good grad school. So I, I think education is one of the things in my family life that my parents focused on and emphasized and you know didn't pressure us for grades or anything like that. In fact, they never pressured us to do well in school other than to kind of lay out their ethos that if we all wanted to have a better life than they did and, and maybe a little bit easier kind of economic setup that good education was the ticket to that.
0: On a kind of final note about your family life, do you have any other important stories to yourself that have shaped who you are because of your family or anything like that? Yeah, one
1: vignette probably worth sharing is that my dad ended up getting laid off from AT&T at a pretty young age. Uh, I think he was in his mid-50s when he got laid off. So he probably had another what, 10 years of productive working and they were doing pretty big layoffs at one point during a downturn in the economy. And that was, that was a wake up call for me and it was very tough for him to not go out on his own terms and to have a, a you know, a, a financial stress in his life. We never lived beyond our means. My parents were always very thoughtful about managing money. We didn't have much, but the inability for him to control his narrative and go out on a high note from a career perspective, even though it was a kind of a middle management type job, he was always very proud of his accomplishments at AT AT&T. So that was tough. And, and for me, the takeaway or at least the grit or the drive that I have today might be partly driven by the fear of not having the ability to control my narrative and, and, and wanting to not just have the economic freedom, but the freedom to control the way I spend my time and, you know, not be dispensable. Ultimately, like my dad was.
0: So, you brought up that you went to Brooks High School. So, let's talk a little bit more specifically about your high school experience. I mean, just in general, kind of what was school like for you? Yeah, I
1: think my Brooks years, my four years at Brooks were probably four of my more formative years in my life. And I I attribute a lot of who I am today and where I am today to those four years. I had incredible mentors at Brooks. I had incredible coaches, incredible teachers. I can go on and on about many of them. I'll talk about two coaches, teachers in particular. I had one Latin teacher who was also my football coach and also my college counselor. So he was wearing a lot of hats back then. It was Bill Pyro. In fact, his daughter was in my class at Brooks and he was an incredible human being. He went to Bowdoin College. He was a football player at Bowdoin. Incredible educator, kind of an erudite uh, type of guy. He taught me just a lot about, again, work ethic, paying off. I was obviously, uh, maybe not obvious for this audience, but obvious for you, not a huge person in terms of stature. Uh, I was basically the same size I am today in high school. And Bill just wouldn't let anybody's size get in the way of how successful they could be on the football field. As an example, I ended up making varsity as a sophomore and, and becoming captain as a senior. And I attribute a lot of that success on the field to Bill's coaching and Bill's ability to instill confidence, regardless of kind of what you look like or what athletic ability you had. Frankly, we had yeah some great athletes, but we had Incredible work ethic. You know, we would run five miles a morning at six in the morning as a team, and that was something Bill started years before I got to Brooks. And that morning run made us probably fitter than any team in the ISL back east. And I lost two games in four years, I think, as a result wow. of just the work ethic we had and and the ability to drill and and just be better prepared mentally and physically than any of our opponents,
0: mm-hmm.
1: except for those two losses. But Bill was, uh, Bill was awesome. And then the other mentor I had was a guy named Eric Bade. And Doc Bade was very well known in classics circles back in the 60s and 70s. He was well into his 60s when he was teaching me in the mid-80s. In fact, he was the author of a Latin textbook that I think most of the world used back then. Very impressive, pretty well-known guy. He actually lived in my town, so I would occasionally see him around town as well. And he, again, like Bill Pyro, instilled in me the lifelong learning drive that I have to this day. I mean, he, he was the most curious person I've ever met. The most well-read person I've ever met, but also the most humble, incredible teacher of Latin and Greek, but you know well beyond Latin and Greek he, Latin and Greek. He was a student of many disciplines. He knew about almost any era of history when it comes to Roman and Greek times. He knew about more about mythology than you know, anybody I've ever met. He was an incredible writer. So he was just a man for all seasons, just a great mentor for me on many levels. And you know, one of the reasons I became a classical archaeology major in college goes back to what I learned and my passion for Latin and Greek in, in those time periods back in the, call it 500 BC to 500 AD, you know, during the, the big Roman reign, all I learned from Doc Bade carried over to Dartmouth.
0: Mm-hmm. You touched on my next question, which was how did your role models help you in high school? So let's go to extracurriculars beyond football and sports. Were there anything that really stoked your passion? And how did you get yourself to experience these different wasps of the world?
1: Yeah, I was pretty involved in a lot of stuff in high school. I was a three sport captain. I played football, basketball, and baseball, and loved everything about Brooks Athletics back in the 80s. Now, this was the independent school league where, you know, competition wasn't division one type, you know, 1,500 kids in a school. I mean, all these ISL schools had, you know, maybe five or 600 kids max. So we were at 360 or something. So these were small leagues, but pretty athletically focused. So sports was a big part of my day-to-day, and we all had to play a sport, too. It was something that was required. The other thing that I spent a lot of time on in high school was our school newspaper. I ended up becoming editor my senior year. The Brooks Shield was the name of the paper. It was very hands-on. I mean, unlike today's school newspapers, we would do manual layout. We would, just a few of us, would manage taking the paper down to the printer and getting it distributed. It was a pretty much a labor of love for the folks that worked on the paper and You know, the printed word's always been something I've been drawn to, and I I think journalism and and research and getting to the truth is something that uh, I've always held pretty near and dear. And for me, also, writing was something that I focused on a lot growing up and in, in high school, and I think that's been helpful throughout my life I've always enjoyed writing and journalism and and great journalistic tendencies I appreciate quite a bit and I think I learned a lot about that during my high school years at Brooks mm-hmm. so th- those are my you know my big activities for those three sports and paper I was also a chapel prefect at Brooks and most of the New England prep schools have historically had an affiliation oftentimes to the Episcopal Church and we had a leader of our church and, and kind of the religion side at, at Brooks, a guy named Reverend Vaught. And Rev, as we called him, was also one of my mentors at Brooks. And he was just a, you know, the spiritual leader of the school, but also a guy that had an open office and his office was always occupied by Brooks students. And uh, I spent a lot of time you know, with him and, and kind of working in and around the chapel at Brooks as well. That was kind of a big part of my day-to-day routine, and a lot of my close friends were also chapel
0: prefects. Do you have any regrets or changes you'd make to your experience in high school?
1: You know, I I really don't. I got everything I wanted to get out of Brooks. I have an incredible group of friends. In fact, tonight I'm getting on a Zoom with five of my close high school friends to have a cocktail hour. We've stayed in close contact. Some of my best friends in the world were classmates or in or around my class at Brooks. Listen, I worked hard. I, I had a great athletic experience. I, I was involved in a lot of extracurriculars. I can't say as though I would change anything. Although I, I, I did get into trouble in high school. I mean, I did have an incident, which is probably worth sharing, and it's kind of a, potentially a, uh, something that shaped the way I, I uh, thought about <laughs> crossing the line, I guess, in, you know after high school. I got into trouble during the fall of my senior year. I was caught with a bunch of alcohol in my gym locker that was left over from a Howard Jones concert that we all went to in Worcester, Mass., the night after our last football game during the fall. We always took a vow not to drink as, as a football team, and that was a pretty serious thing for us every fall back to the discipline, and the running, and the being better prepared mentally and physically than our uh, opponents. But after the last game, there was always a big party weekend.
0: You can't cut out the drinking completely. There's got to be some celebration of winning.
1: Exactly. So after that last game against St. Paul's, we all went to the Howard Jones concert in Worcester. We stayed at our friend's house, who was a day student. And we had a bunch of booze left over, and I decided I was gonna just stick it in the locker. Season was over, I'd get it eventually.
0: So the lesson is hide your booze better.
1: Hide your booze better and certainly don't leave it in your locker over Thanksgiving break. Perfect. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you finish your We're story soon. now.
1: So over the course of, you know, the Thanksgiving week, did clean out the lockers and they found several bottles of half drunk gin and vodka in my locker. And that was a pretty serious offense um, in high school. So long story short, I had applied early to Harvard and my college counselor, then football coach and Latin teacher fired me just in terms of the honor code to call the director of admissions at Harvard and tell him about the situation. Another friend of mine simultaneously got caught up in a similar incident, unrelated to this one. He had also applied early to Harvard. So we both were required to call the director of admissions and tell our story. So that was a fairly uncomfortable call, not one that I would wish upon my worst enemy. Suffice it to say, I did not get into Harvard. I don't know if it was just the drinking offense or my overall profile, but um it was an interesting lesson.
0: Did your friend get in? No. Okay. Neither. So you don't have to feel about it.
1: And he was like a fourth generation legacy too. It probably was. It probably was the offense.
0: <laughs> so let's go back to high school really quickly. We are going to go back. Oh, okay. 100%. Okay. So you had a fake ID business in high school. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So
1: my fake ID business, again, I, I was always looking for a way to, to make money or, or exploit The illegal. Yeah, well, you know, again, slightly illegal. So I don't even know how I learned how to do this, but I figured out a way to cut open a Massachusetts driver's license with a razor blade and change the 8 in the 68 to a 3 by using a grease pencil to to make, you know, to take half of the 8 away effectively. And it looked awful, but it seemed to work. So I would change your license for 25 bucks, and I would then iron over the uh, kind of remelt the plastic you know from the slit. So yeah, uh, I did it for a lot of my friends. So there was a whole cadre of, of people, not, not just from Brooks, but from my town that had fake IDs that were architected by me in my office at home.. Oh. Study room at home,
0: and did you get caught on this? No, I actually never got caught. So you learned from the fireworks experience, and you always (laughs) hid your stuff.
1: (laughs) I didn't really have a lot of equipment. I had a razor blade and a grease pencil, and and I'd use my mom's iron. (laughs) That was it. So yeah, one of my many side businesses.
0: Anything else that you're you're not sharing here? No,
1: no, that's it. It was the illegal fireworks, and then the fake ID business. Those are my two slightly illegal money-making interests.
0: Okay. So now let's go back to, to Dartmouth and continue talking about your experience there. So if you want to give a general overview of what life was like there.
1: Sure. So when I was coming out of high school, I thought I was going to be a college athlete. I was not big enough or skilled enough to play Division One football. That was my favorite sport back in high school. I was recruited to play at Williams College in Middlebury. Those are the two schools that were interested in me as a football player. My football coach and athletic director had gone to Williams and was a quarterback, and he was very much encouraging me to go to Williams College. I had applied to a bunch of schools, and I just wasn't sure if I I really wanted to play football in college in the end, so I, I just... Had a good feeling about Dartmouth. I had visited most of the folks uh, that I knew from Brooks that had gone up to Dartmouth were folks that I could really relate to. It just felt like a better fit to me than williams or middlebury or or princeton or or Yale and Brown the other schools that I got into so anyway, Dartmouth for me was kind of an obvious choice i'm I'm an outdoorsy person it's a pre rural campus. I got to campus and you know, didn't know a ton of people, but pretty quickly found a couple of interesting veins that that really intrigued me. One was rugby. I met a whole bunch of great folks, and we all decided to go out and play rugby together as freshmen. Uh, Dartmouth has a pretty good, well-known rugby tradition going back to the '50s. Oh, has always been kind of a top ten team in the country, and you know, very. You know, proud tradition of fielding five or six sides per weekend, and great coaching, and and pretty big endowment, et cetera, et cetera. So it it was a natural fit for me to kind of take the place of what what was football for me in high school. I also fell right into you know academically, you know, some of the classic stuff that I talked about earlier from high school. I started taking Latin and Greek, and then got a little burnt out in the language over time. And started to focus more on the archaeology side, kind of using that language as a base and took a lot of Greek and Roman history courses, did two foreign study programs while at, at Dartmouth, one in Italy where I spent a term of visiting digs and various historical sites. And I also spent the summer between junior and senior year on the island of Majorca, off the coast of Spain working on a dig. So working in Alcudia wow. on the northern part of the island, it was an old Roman colony dating back to 200 BC to 400 AD. So it was about 700 years mm-hmm. of stuff. And Dartmouth had a big dig there every summer. They took, I think, five students went over from Dartmouth and five went over from Spain, from Madrid. And so the 10 students stayed in this home and worked on a dig every day, which was super cool. In fact, the year that I went, one of my claims to fame is actually getting everything off of index cards onto a Macintosh into an access database. Uh, this is the summer of 89. The dig had been pretty manual and, and you know paper intensive up until that point. So that was kind of a fun adventure for the summer. So rugby, uh, classics, those two foreign study programs. I also joined a fraternity. Called Phi Delta Alpha, which is a local fraternity in Dartmouth, and ended up just making incredible friendships from freshman year on. Some of my best friends today, including my best friend and business partner, I met in the fraternity life at Dartmouth
0: Mm -hmm. at Phi Delta. And. You mentioned that you kind of had a experience with burnout towards the language, but you got over that by experimenting with new things. Is that, I mean, I know that a lot of students kind of go through that same burnout. So what advice would you give to those students?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I was always enamored with the time periods that I was learning about translating Latin and Greek, but in high school did not have a chance to really explore history or mythology or art, architecture and religion that you heard about a lot or you read the terms in translation, but didn't really have a feel for. So I thought it was a pretty natural extension and I really fell in love with exploring the art and the architecture and the religions and time periods that I Used to just read about in translation, but now had a chance to learn about and, and see in person on some of these you know, foreign study programs. So I guess the the message would be, even if something becomes rote or routinized or you're burning out or not you know, seeing the relevance of a subject matter, I would encourage folks to probe and look beyond, look to the concentric circles that touch that subject matter where you might find other avenues to explore that really will get your creative juices flowing and keep you engaged in kind of a a lifelong learning mindset.
0: Sure. This is kind of a quick jump past your college life, but you studied classical archaeology and then you went into tech investment. Where is the link between those two?
1: Yeah, it's a a good question. So it's a little bit odd. So coming out of Dartmouth, a lot of my friends were going down to Wall Street and doing kind of investment banking jobs. I interviewed with a bunch of banks and ended up taking a job in the tech and emerging growth group at Merrill Lynch. And the reason I chose Merrill Lynch was because of that. I I always had kind of a fascination with technology. As a kid, I had a TRS-80 Radio Shack computer that I built, and I'm always kind of geeking out on computer side of things. In fact, I turned down other banking jobs just because I was so attracted to a firm that had a group that was tech and emerging growth. Other Mm -hmm. firms didn't. The funny part of the story is that when I got to New York the summer of 1990, I learned that the tech and emerging growth group had been blown up and disbanded, and I had to find another group. This was like during the training program, so I ended up doing high-yield restructuring which was not my sweet spot at all. That's really how I found my way originally into tech. What happened that got me launched in it is that uh, about halfway through my first year at Merrill Lynch, I wasn't loving banking and I wasn't great at it. And I felt like just a cog in the wheel. I got a call from a firm that I interviewed with at Dartmouth, a firm called TA Associates, which was a a tech-focused investing firm out of Boston, I didn't get a job coming out of Dartmouth, but for whatever reason, they remembered me and stayed in touch and called me out of the blue in January of, I guess this would be January of 91, and said, hey, one of our associates is going back to business school. Would you be interested in potentially talking to the folks you haven't met yet? And would you consider leaving your job? Merrill Lynch to join us. We really liked you, but we just didn't have a spot back then. Mm -hmm. So it was a pretty big decision for me. This is kind of your first job out of college, and you're quitting after six months. So I struggled with it a lot. I'm not a quitter, and I felt like I was letting a lot of people down. But I came back to trying to figure out what was the best thing to do for me. And I, for whatever reason, I, I, I had this inkling that technology was something that's going to be a great fit for me. And being around entrepreneurs was going to be a a great fit for me longer term. Mm -hmm. So I got really lucky with this and it kind of came out of the blue. And I, I flew up to Boston that January. I met the folks I hadn't met yet. I got a job offer like the day I got back to New York and I thought, you know, even though I, I feel badly about quitting and I feel badly that, Meryl has put all this time and money into training me. I also feel like I kind of took a job to join the Tech and Growth Group, and it was gone when I showed up. So yeah. in a way, I, I had my own mental justification as to why it made sense for me to leave. So I mean, it was tough extracting myself. People were not happy. This is a pretty sought-after job, these analyst jobs in the Wall Street banking programs. They still are. And to quit after six months was kind of unheard of, but I did it. And I packed up my U-Haul and I drove from New York with my limited belongings up to Boston. And I've never looked back. I've been a software investor from that day on. So it's been almost, almost 30 years.
0: And so would you say that the classical archaeology kind of study at Dartmouth helped you recognize that you wanted to follow your kind of passion throughout, like that you needed to make the decision to follow what you liked. And because you did that in college, you followed the uh, idea that you really wanted to focus on the classics. And so you had to find a way to to do that in an environment, even where you were kind of experiencing burnout with the languages. And so when you got to the tech world, you felt the same motivation there where you were like, I'm in this world now, like I'm here because this is where I'm going to make make money, but I know that I want to be in the tech side, so I have to follow my passion and be in the tech side?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I I think they're somewhat unrelated. I mean, I will say that I I did knock around the idea leading up to my senior year of interviewing of doing something professionally in archaeology. So I spent some time with our professors in the classics department. I talked to a couple of folks that were in PhD programs. And to be honest, this may sound a little bit materialistic and shallow, but I was struggling with how I was going to make a living as an archaeologist. Um, mm-hmm. The stories I heard from these PhD students and and some of the folks that were working on the dig in Majorca was that their lives were centered around applying for grants and living from grant to grant. So there's never really a salary. You're always trying to, you know, sing for your supper, and you know, get enough money to get you through a period of time between grants or you can obviously teach. And I just didn't envision myself as a professor, as a teacher at that point in my life. And I also maybe from being exposed to a fair amount of wealth at both Brooks and Dartmouth wanted to do well financially and have financial freedom and have a much better, not better necessarily, but, uh, maybe economically cushier lifestyle long-term. And you know because I saw friends of mine that I respected and admired going into banking, I thought that was a place to start. And then having you know, some limited exposure to tech, I just knew that I wanted to be around growth businesses and entrepreneurs that were willing to bend the rules. And, and maybe that goes back to some of my character flaws on bending rules as a kid with my various ventures that were less than legal Uh, and entrepreneurs are are like that. They're selling it, selling futures, They're sometimes bending the rules a little bit. So I've always been attracted to that mindset.
0: So I don't want to sound like I'm leading here, but I want to make sure that I kind of understand what you're saying. So would you say that you chose to study classics in school because you wanted to educate yourself wholly and get a, a really powerful education and learn about the world. And then from there, it was kind of like, this is where I see myself being successful, so I'm going to move to the tech department.
1: I think that's part of it. I think I had really good mentors in high school, and I had this grounding in Latin and Greek, and I wanted to apply that when I got to college. Dartmouth had a terrific classics department, and I loved the professors in the classics department. So I think intellectually, it was a really... One way to spend four years at a liberal arts college, Uh, in addition to all the other disciplines that I dabbled with from English to economics, to history, to government. But I I always kept coming back to my major as being something I was super passionate about. This is the great thing about liberal arts too. I never really linked my major to what I was going to do longer term, other than to briefly do some research on what it might be like to yep. be an archaeologist as a as a profession. I, I think in the back of my mind, I always had myself in some sort of financial services job, managing money, making investments, advising, being a mentor to entrepreneurs, et cetera. I didn't really know what that meant in, in yep. high school, but I'm very fortunate to have found my way into tech investing, private equity, venture capital over the course mm-hmm. of my career. But that career ambition, and kind of where I ended up, uh, it was never tethered to my major. It was never something that um, I connected. A lot of folks, of course, get into college and do economics with the thought that that would launch them into banking or do government with the thought that that grounding will help them as a lawyer. I never really, I guess I'm just a big believer in liberal arts this way. I don't think that anybody's major or how they spend time in college necessarily correlates with where they end up professionally.
0: Yeah. And then we'll briefly we'll talk about you went to Stanford Business School too. We can brush over that, but is there anything important from that experience that you feel like you took away?
1: Yeah, I think the the biggest, well there are a few takeaways, but coming out of TA Associates in the mid 90s, I was not planning on going to business school. I was talking to TA about staying They were encouraging me to leave and go get an MBA and come back. I kind of begrudgingly applied to business school. I only applied to one business school. I only applied to Stanford. I didn't really cast the net wide. I didn't get into Stanford initially, by the way. I was waitlisted, so I got off the waitlist. But I took a lot of advice and had a lot of faith in my boss at TA Associates, a guy named Brian Conway, who was a Stanford business school grad. And because I admired him so much and, and wanted to be like him and saw the power of networking and the folks that he met at business school and what he learned as being a huge plus in his career, I kind of begrudgingly saw myself going down that path if I were to get in. And man, in retrospect, I underestimated the power of of learning, of unplugging, and, and having an environment where you can experiment two years specifically in and around business I met my wife at Stanford, so that was probably my biggest surprise takeaway and just stroke of luck, and I've met some of my best friends in the world at business school, so there were lots of takeaways. I mean, I I didn't think I was going to learn much in the classroom. I learned a ton. I think my favorite class was a real estate class I took that allowed me to think about down into the bowels of how america works i mean how retail works and how landlords work and what a cap rate was and so much of that you can apply to uh, anything in investing i took some terrific entrepreneurship classes those were for me some of the highlights as well you know, gross specs class on entrepreneurship Chuck Holloway's business plan writing course, two term course was just amazing, super formative. In fact, there was a time where my two partners in that project and I were going to start the business that we did the business plan for. Mm -hmm. So I think, just in terms of entrepreneurial zeal and feeling that you can do anything, coming out of Stanford in the mid 90s in particular, it was a time and an investment well worth making that I underestimated.
0: Yeah. So after business school, you didn't go back to TA Associates. You went to work for GTCR and you kind of talked about that with um, your investments that we discussed at the beginning. From there, you went and you worked at Trinity Ventures. And from Trinity, you went to uh, TCV. So, is there anything from your experience at Trinity that you think is important to talk about?
1: Yeah, Trinity was kind of an interesting 10 year, kind of the middle part of my career, I guess. And it was the 10 years where I did early stage investing. The first, call it two four-year chunks on either side of business school. I did late-stage private equity, growth-stage investing. I then did 10 years during the explosion of technology, uh, really from the uh, bubble bursting to 2010, uh, was involved with some terrific businesses at Trinity. The biggest takeaways compared to, say, either side of my career on the private equity growth equity side is just going back to my earlier commentary around how fast categories shift in how the tectonic plates of technology change so quickly. We were doing investing in companies that were two guys, a dog, and a plan, maybe a handful of customers. And it's just amazing how precarious these business plans were ultimately looking back on it how difficult it was to pick out the winners at the early 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 stages even if you were good at identifying market trends there are so many things that could go wrong in a startup and so many competitive forces at work that it's a really tough 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 job and you, know, you can see how the venture industry has evolved over time. It's it's really kind of the haves and haves and have nots now. There are yeah. probably ten firms that that really matter that have you know stood the test of time. Actually Trinity's one of them. Trinity is on their, I don't know, 13th or 14th fund right now. So they've been around since the mid eighties and stood the test of time. There aren't many firms that get into, you know, fund 10 plus land. Yeah, so, uh, it was a great uh, experience for me. Uh, helping entrepreneurs grow from the early stages to the late stages was a ton of fun.
0: So, finally, I kind of want to go to your family life now. So, you're a father of three. You're married. What do you see your role as a parent as?
1: Yeah, parenting is hard. It's probably the toughest job when you think about it that uh, I've ever had. You know, all of your kids have different personalities. They have different wants and desires you, you kind of want to be their best friend, but you also want to be the tough mentor for them and an advisor to them. And that doesn't always go hand in hand with being their friend. So I think that's, that's a tough balance. You obviously want them to have everything that you had growing up and more, but you also don't want your kids to feel entitled. So I think instilling a work ethic. And I think a lot of the same values that my parents and Wendy's parents uh, instilled in their kids growing up. Yeah, you try to impart to your kids. and, And I think a lot about that. I certainly don't want our kids to think that life is easy. It's not. And that hard work and grit go a long way. So I spent a lot of time as a parent trying to impart those morals and values. And Also trying to stay balanced. I think it's really easy in geographies like Silicon Valley to get imbalanced and, and, you know, the wealth imbalance out here is, is grotesque at times. And I think all of our kids have exposure to that and trying to keep them grounded and focused on what's important in life beyond the material things is something that uh, I certainly spend a lot of time thinking about. And I hopefully am doing a decent job of navigating, helping them navigate and, and focus on the things that are really important like family, friends and school and also just being a contributor to society too. I think it's really hard in environments like this to pop up your head and, and realize what's going on outside of Silicon Valley and this bubble that we live in. It's tough out there in society right now with the wealth and balance and and I think just making sure the kids have Insight into that is something that I think is important.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you for your time. All right. Thank you. Hi everyone. I'm your host Will Brigger, and this is One Hour Intern. Check out other business episodes with top VCs, CEOs, and entrepreneurs like CEO of SoFi Anthony Noto, co-founder of YouTube Steve Chen, Forbes Midas List member and Miraco, and more. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Make sure to follow on Instagram at One Hour Intern. That's the number one, not the word. And share this episode with your friends.